0: Hello, and thank you for joining the second season of Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Please remember that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now let's welcome Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner, and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast.
1: Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, and everyone listening to this podcast, or I guess I could even say good evening. I'm Mike O'Donnell, and I have my co-host Bethany Abley with us. We have our special guest, Lance Pomerantz, and we also have Kevin Hackinson on the podcast, who will talk about a case afterward. Let's talk to Lance, and Lance, Lawyers always say this, but this is actually true. A good friend of mine, who I've gone to the American Land Title Association council meetings for years to, he's one of our most knowledgeable members, I think probably at, not at that council meeting, but in the industry. And he has a unique perspective. He's a practicing attorney, but he only provides expert consultation service. So let's, I'd like to start this interview off with, How did you come to be a practicing attorney that only provides basically expert services in the title insurance, real estate litigation world? And what is it that you do that that you provide for your clients? Thanks, Mike. It's great to be on the podcast after being a long-time
2: listener from day one. As far as what I do and how I got to where I am, I'll give you a little bit of background. First of all, I just want to say that my My practice is not limited only to the title insurance industry. I do provide research, consulting, and expert testimony to title companies, their claims counsel, their outside counsel in connection with claims litigation. But I also do probably the majority of my practice focuses on non title insurance related disputes, just land title disputes between parties. The reason title insurance is not included in those kinds of cases is either there was no policy or the claim arises outside of the policy provisions, or frequently the claim or the dispute arises because of uh, post-policy events. So title insurance doesn't figure into it. But there are plenty of disputes that don't directly involve title insurance, but they do involve title law and require my expertise. As far as my background and and how I got to where I am now, I started out technically while I was still a law student with the city of Boston. I was going to school at Boston University Law School. And what started out as more or less of an internship turned into an appointment as a special assistant corporation counsel for the city once I passed the bar. And the reason it was special was because I was basically a free agent. I didn't have any particular assigned role. And it turned out to be a blessing because I wound up litigating in state all these different state courts, both trial and appellate level courts, the specialty courts. I wound up litigating in federal court, in bankruptcy proceedings, in admiralty proceedings. I wound up in front of state agencies. I wound up being involved in the legislative process. I even did a very brief stint as an administrative law judge when the nominee's confirmation was held up at the last minute. So for a young lawyer just starting out to see a wide range of practice areas and just it was like a fire hose. It just kept coming. And I was dealing with departments all across the city and all kinds of different substantive areas. So it was really great trial by fire. And one of the things that I did do was I was very involved in title examinations in connection with tax title foreclosures, which we did by the thousands every year. So I really learned the nuts and bolts craft of title searching and looking for issues that can arise and breaks in the chain, that sort of thing. Fast forward a few years, eventually I moved back to New York. And while I was awaiting my bar admission in New York, just to make a living, I started doing freelance title searches for title agents and law firms. And the thought process was, well, I'll do this for a while, while I'm looking for a quote unquote real job. And once I'm admitted, I'll start practicing law in a more traditional sense. As it turned out, it was completely serendipitous, but an attorney for whom I was doing work asked me, seemingly out of the blue one day, whether I would like to be an expert witness in a case. And I did that. It went very well. He had more cases. He referred me to other people. They referred me to other people. One thing led to another. And 35 years later, here we are. Sort of the joke in my family is, I've been looking for a "quote unquote" real job for 35 years and haven't haven't found it yet. But that's the short, concise version of my background and what led me to this. And needless to say, as I've been practicing, I've also been learning. I've been learning both the substantive stuff. Yeah, you know, Mike knows very well. I've published a lot of articles. I've done a lot of research in a lot of different areas. And I've also been learning the, you know, the nuts and bolts of what works as an expert witness, what doesn't work, how to interact with the clients and the client deal with client expectations and all that sort of thing. So it's really sort of almost like an accidental career.
1: And Lance, I know that as you discussed, you've done a lot of title searching and I know that you've done some of the thorniest property chain research that imaginable. Can you tell us some of our listeners about tracking down those chains of title and some of the research and work that you've done that that go beyond just looking at the county clerk records and ferreting all of that out?
2: Sure, Mike. In fact, probably the bulk of what I do involves stuff that doesn't track with the normal path of title research. I'm sort of known, I guess, as the title expert of last resort because I tend to get the cases that are too overwhelming or too complicated for most other, especially lay examiners. I can't get into you know specific cases, but I can give you an idea of the kinds of things that I've done. I mean you always start at the local level. You always start at the county clerk or the register or whatever it is in that particular jurisdiction. But once you start to run into the problem or problems, Then you need to go further. And it's not unusual for me to rely on fairly well known institutions such as the Library of Congress collection or the New York Public Library collection, just as examples of well known places. I've even researched in the Northeast, as everyone knows, the Northeast part of the US came from Britain. And I've even researched land grants back to the Royal Charters. So I've actually relied on the UK national archives for material and actually have have submitted that material in connection with different cases apart from governmental or institutional research let me also add that it's not unusual for me to do underwater land cases and those typically involve state agencies because underwater land grants are typically controlled by the state or canal grants or that sort of thing So I interface quite a bit with, depending on the jurisdiction, you know, the names change, but the functions are usually the same. The agencies that deal with underwater land grants, especially historical material. As far as non-governmental or non-institutional sources, I deal with a lot of genealogical material, private land records. I mean, once you get back far enough, you start to find original deeds that actually aren't of record, but are still binding on the parties to the deeds, even though they're not recorded. Church records are very handy. I'm constantly trying to find out-of-state marriage, death, divorce records, that sort of thing. And I imagine that your listeners, you know, understand why that material can be very critical in establishing change of title. It's not unusual this is just a little bit of an anecdote, but it's not unusual. And what I do to find me crawling around in a sub basement somewhere looking for a hundred year old or 200 year old tax or highway record in a basement that doesn't have lighting. I'm wearing like a miner's headlamp to provide light, and I'm sloshing around in an inch of water, and I hear all kinds of creatures running around in the darkness. But that's my life, and sometimes it's a basement, sometimes it's an attic, sometimes it's whatever. But you go where the evidence leads you, and frequently it leads to things like that.
1: Now, I was curious, what type of information do you get out of the Library of Congress or the New York Library that helps you figure out land titles?
2: Well, those collections in particular, they have vast collections of historical maps, especially maps made by official state agencies that may no longer exist. I mean, you know, especially in the Northeast, where there's a 350-year history that even predates the revolution, there can be maps that were made either by government agencies or by land surveyors back in, say, the late 1600s and early 1700s that are official in the sense that they're the only surviving, or maybe the only original documentation of particular land boundaries or monumentation. And those frequently are only in those kinds of large institutional collections. I mean, universities have collections. For instance, the State University of Stony Brook, which is where I live, they have an excellent collection of aerial photography of the East Coast of the United States done in the 1930s. It lacks a lot of detail, but it's very good for, there are certain, let's put it this way, there are certain times where it comes in very handy to have an aerial from 1938.
1: We can understand that for sure. aerial photos sometimes tell the story, a picture is worth a thousand words. Now, I know you've done a lot of assignments in New York. Beachfront properties, particularly like the Hamptons with some well-heeled individuals. And I know that you can't discuss their names or anything like that, and we're not asking it to, but can you tell our listeners some of the challenges dealing with beachfront properties, title, and disputes? Because I know you've had some epic struggles there.
2: It's funny that you bring that up, Mike, because one thing that has struck me, and of course I have done a lot of beachfront and waterfront property disputes and continue to do so. One thing that strikes me as I've gone through this process throughout my career is that a lot of the disputes that we focus on in the modern era, especially when there are celebrities or wealthy people involved, are really just echoes of disputes that have been going on for literally thousands of years. I mean, once you go back far enough, and I have studied this stuff all the way back to the Roman era, it basically boils down to the same kinds of issues being litigated over and over or disputed over and over from the Romans through the Anglo-Saxons into British times and into U.S. times. So it's funny how the same thing keeps coming up over and over and over. A lot of the issues, I think, come from, I'm going to say, roughly speaking, three different types of origins. One is, the parties don't understand the law concerning where the boundaries are and what the rights of the respective parties are. Or, and this is probably even more pronounced today, they disagree with the law. For instance, there are a lot of people who feel that the beaches should be open to the public regardless of what the law says. And the law clearly, at least in New York, clearly does not say that that's the way it should be. And also, and this came up in a case, a very high-profile case that I actually can discuss, because it's in the public record, there's a, it's known as the Truck Beach case out in East Hampton. And the essence of this case was that the beachfront was actually sold by the town trustees back in the 1800s, 1884 or 86, something like that, to private upland interests. And for the last, I'm going to say, 50, 60 years or so, it's been used by the local townspeople. In other words, not just the upland owners. And it became known as Truck Beach because the people who were using the beach were actually driving trucks and cars and vehicles on the beach. It's a wide swath of beach, and it's about 4,000 linear feet right on the Atlantic Ocean. So it's very coveted piece of property. And it got to the point where the upland owners were concerned about noise and safety and a lot of other issues. And when they couldn't get relief from the town as far as trying to control these quality of life issues, they asserted their title down to the mean high watermark. This very contentious litigation that I think went on or has been going on for 13, 14 years now I testified in that it went up to the uh, appellate division, which agreed with my analysis. Unfortunately, the appellate division did not, they kept referring to the expert, but they never mentioned my name. It was nice to get some recognition. But as I mentioned, there were three origins to these disputes. And this is the third one, which is that the local townspeople, even though it was brought to their attention that the town had parted with these beach rights, 180 years ago, whatever it is, they didn't feel like they should be bound by that sale. And they have, well, let's put it this way. There was a, a concerted effort to try to undo that sale, but it was pretty clear. And these documents were recorded. There was nothing secret about any of this. And it was well known that this had happened. So again, you know, you get into situations with waterfront properties where people just don't like what's happened over time even though it's legally binding so that's a big issue when it comes to the waterfront access and waterfront use
1: that's one more story but we always ask consultants or experts people in your line of work whether you can give our listeners one of your war stories that you find sort of epitomizes the challenges you face and will obviously entertain our listeners okay let's see I think something that does
2: epitomize the challenges, and it was personally gratifying to me, it is actually not a case at all. But, and I think you know this, Mike, I think you and I have discussed this a while ago. Back in 2015, the Judicial Conference of the United States, which makes the rules for all the federal courts, they were entertaining a proposal to do away with the ancient document exception to the hearsay rule in the federal rules of evidence. and The Advisory Committee on Rules had prepared an analysis of the hearsay exception and had even recognized that the exception originated back in merry old England as a means by which to help prove land titles. That's what it was originally intended for. And what happened in the US over the last 50, 60 years was that the use of the ancient document rule had been expanded into a lot of non real estate cases, a lot of mass tort cases and white collar crime cases and that sort of thing. So there were a lot of constituencies that were pushing for the abolition of the rule completely. I got wind of this. I submitted lengthy comments to the judicial conference outlining the origins of the rule, the 400 year history of the rule, why it was still critical to land title litigation in the modern era. And after I submitted my comments, I was actually invited to testify in front of the judicial conference at the public hearings on this rule. And of all of the, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 witnesses that testified, I was the only one who focused on this issue. And it was gratifying to me personally because The judges, and and I should point out, it's all judges who serve on the judicial conference. The judges that were on the panel clearly had read my comments. That was reflected in the questioning that they gave me, and they really seemed to take them to heart. What was most gratifying to me was that ultimately the rule survived, and as far as I know, still survives to this day. I can't take personal credit for it surviving, but it did seem as though the judges were taking my concerns seriously. And it was fun, it was interesting, and it also served to show how even judges can misunderstand the process of title litigation and what's important and what isn't important. So I think that epitomizes, to some extent, the challenges that I'm up against on a day-to-day basis.
1: Now- I know you, you're you an expert principally in New York, Lance, but do you cover any other areas of the country or internationally, or can you just give us some insight there? Well, the bulk of
2: my in-person testimony is in New York. I should say that in addition to the substantive aspects on which I testify, I also, because of my litigation experience and background... I also serve as a litigation consultant, so I can provide to my clients, and my clients are the attorneys who are representing the landowners or the disputants. I can provide to my clients insights into things like how to tailor discovery, the most focused discovery requests. I can do things like attend depositions in person so that I can suggest follow-up questions in real time during the questioning. There are a lot of different angles with that, or things like helping prepare cross-examination if there's an expert on the other side of the case, and that sort of thing. So in terms of my live testimony and my substantive expertise, it tends to focus on New York. In a broader sense, I do get consultations from around the country. I've had a couple of things internationally, but too, too few to really make a difference. But I would say it's pretty widespread. I don't want to say it's been all 50 states, but it's, it clearly hasn't. But it's been a broad spectrum from across the country. And I think that's just because my reputation is such that if somebody runs into some sort of oddball, unusual kind of once in a lifetime problem, they call me or they email me or they reach out to me in some fashion. Lance, this
1: has been great. But before we leave, we... Always give our guests a chance to plug anything they want to plug as far as a blog or publications or, or anything else they think that our listeners would be interested in that is in your Ballywick. Well, Mike, thank
2: you. All I would say is that if people are interested in finding out more about what I do and my background and qualifications, they can visit my website, which is, I don't know if anyone says www anymore but it's all one word, com. And I have gotten a lot of good feedback from that website over the years. I really make an effort to provide a lot of information. One of the things that gets a lot of interest is my newsletter, which is known as the Constructive Notice, the Land Title Newsletter. And people can find that by just going to the Homepage of my website. And along the left hand side, there are a couple of different tabs and constructive notice gets its own tab. There are about 150 back issues, each one devoted to a particular case or area of interest to my readership. And that's really about it. That's really about all I have to plug. Landtitlelaw.com really has everything that anyone would want, I believe. And my contact information is there as well if they want to reach out.
1: Thank you, Lance. And with that, I'm now going to turn the podcast over to my partner, Bethany Abley, and our team member, Kevin Hackinson, to talk about our case in the podcast.
3: Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Lance, for being with us this morning. That was fantastic. And thank you for giving us uh, your website address with the www, because... I, for one, know I'm going to visit and look up that constructive notice subfolder you've got, (laughs) because we uh, deal with that, obviously, quite often. So thanks again for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: So, Kevin, we're going to speak about a case today from the Middle District of Alabama. And can you tell us about Davis versus reverse mortgage solutions?
4: Yeah, I sure can. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Bethany. Davis v. Reverse Mortgage Solutions, this was a case that was just decided earlier this year, March of 2023. This involved a plaintiff named Adina Davis. She owned property that was located in Chilton County, Alabama. More specifically, it was in Clanton, Alabama, which I don't know if you have much knowledge on the geography of Alabama, which I certainly do not, but Clanton is right between Montgomery and Birmingham about 45 minutes from each. I had to take a look to to see where we were talking about here. So this was, again, property that she owned in Chilton County, Clayton. Parts of this property included two parcels originally. One was a parcel that her parents had acquired in September of 1973, and then there was an additional portion that they had acquired in December of
3: 1993. And what was the
4: deal with these two parcels? Yeah. So, you know, we'll find out later in the case that this is what caused some of the issues in this case. So the initial parcel that they had acquired in, in September of 1973 seemed to be a portion of the land that just had the home that they lived in, you know, situated on it. Whereas the second parcel, which again, they did not acquire until about 20 years later, that's what contained essentially the rest of the land that was part of their property. So their yard, there's a, I believe there's a pool that's part of the property that was behind the house. So that's what each of the two parcels, you know, contained. So just to give a little bit of background on how the plaintiff acquired the property, again, her parents acquired that first portion in 1973, the second portion in 1993, and then plaintiff's mother, Mrs. Davis, died in 2009. By the survivorship provisions of that original 1973 deed, title to the property passes to her husband, Ms. Adeem Davis's father. Mr. Davis passed away in November 2018, and that's how she winds up acquiring the property. In the interim between when Mrs. Davis and Mr. Davis between when they had passed away, Mr. Davis took out a mortgage on the property. he took out a reverse mortgage on the property, you know went through the paperwork that obviously goes into that process, listing the year of 1975 as the year that the home was being built, listing that you know the address in Clinton as the address that's listed as the home, listing the tax parcel that included the entirety of the property on the mortgage. However, when he went through the process of applying for this mortgage, the meets and bounds description of the property included only that second parcel that we talked about that included the yard and the pool, and it didn't include the description of the actual portion of the property that the house was situated on.
3: And I believe, Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in the process when he was applying for the loan, the appraisal included the whole property, both parcels included the house, I believe his representations to the bank were: this is owner occupied, this is where I live, my primary residence, things of that nature. While he was applying for the loan, is that correct?
4: That's exactly right. Yeah, and that and that was part of the of the mortgage process was that they did do an appraisal, and you know certainly when they did the appraisal, they weren't doing an appraisal of just the surrounding land, the yard, and the pool. Yes, he had to fill out a form saying that I acknowledge as part of this mortgage application that I live at this residence, that it's my full time residence yeah that was all part of the process
3: and yet the mortgage only had the meets and bounds of one parcel spoiler alert everybody that's what this case is going to be about
4: (laughs) so the mortgage gets recorded but again yes the mortgage is only recorded with the description of that surrounding land it doesn't include the description of the land that the actual house is on and then when mr davis passes away the mortgage gets foreclosed on because there was a clause in the mortgage saying that. That's what the mortgage company had the right to do, you know, upon the death of the mortgage holder. So they go through the the mortgage foreclosure process. The mortgage gets foreclosed on, eventually a foreclosure deed gets issued with the reverse mortgage solutions, also as the purchaser of the property at the foreclosure sale. But, you know, as you can imagine, consistent with the, the description of the property in the mortgage, the foreclosure deed also only included the description. Of the surrounding land parcel to, so to speak, and not the description of the land that included the home.
3: So, how do we get into this lawsuit? Who sued whom and what were they looking for?
4: Right. So, Miss Davis, the heir to this property, is actually the one who brought suit. In 2020, she recorded an affidavit stating her heirship to the portion of the property with the house on it. And then she recorded a warranty deed, which purported to convey that property. To herself, you know, essentially as the heir to the property to herself. And so, you know, she brings suit. She sought a declaration from the court as to a few things. She wanted a declaration from the court as to ownership of the property. She wanted an injunction, therefore, prohibiting reverse mortgage solutions from interfering with her ownership of the property. And she also sought damages caused by what she said was damage to the property caused by reverse mortgage solutions, which I think was. Yeah, really just damages that quote-unquote damages that were caused by their making improvements to the property after they believed to have taken ownership to it. Reverse mortgage solutions asserted a counterclaim to that complaint, essentially seeking to have sort of the opposite happen, to have them declared the owner of the property, or in the alternative to have that mortgage indeed reformed so as to correctly describe the property and the reason for that that they gave was that there was very clearly, a, a, you know, a mutual mistake between the properties as to the true description of the property that should have been reflected
3: in the mortgage and therefore the deed. And the opinion that we are discussing today was a summary judgment opinion. And on summary judgment, the court decided that they would grant summary judgment in favor of reverse mortgage and they would reform the mortgage. Is that correct?
4: That's exactly right. The opinion spends the bulk of the time focusing on that counterclaim where really the, I think the the court pretty clearly saw, well, you know, what's really at issue here is to determine whether or not this deed, this mortgage indeed should be reformed. And, you know, it doesn't take as much time on the uh, on the plaintiff's actual claims that started the suit. So, you know, what the court analyzed was whether or not there truly was mutual mistake between the parties here that warranted, you know, the warranted reformation of the mortgage and the deed. And what, you know, the court pointed out that a party seeking reformation of a mortgage and deed by virtue of mutual mistake has a pretty high bar to clear in proving that. They have to show that there's clear and convincing evidence as to the mistake. You know, we know as attorneys that whenever we have to prove something by clear and convincing evidence, that's usually pretty tough. But the court pointed to, I think, 10 or maybe even a dozen facts that underlie this case that showed that there was clearly a you know mutual mistake as to the description of the property. You know, it pointed out that the properties agreed that the mortgage only described a portion of the property. The parties agreed that the description omitted the portion that included the residence. And it pointed out that there was no dispute as to the authenticity of, of the documents. It's not as though one of the parties was arguing that one of them, you know, these documents were forged or anything like that. It pointed to the fact that, that the loan application that Mr. Davis had filled out was for titled a residential loan application for reverse mortgages, so clearly implying that there's a residence involved. The application listed this property as his primary residence. He had to fill out a verification of occupancy, as we talked about. The appraisal, as we talked about, was for the whole property, not for just a portion of it. The application required that the borrower be using this as his primary residence. He certified that.
3: I don't mean to interrupt you, Kevin, but I think he also certified to it yearly, if I recall correctly. I think it was every year he had to say, I still live in this property. I still live at this house. That's your collateral.
4: Yeah, that's right. And the one that I got the impression that the court was really, that was sort of the kicker was the fact that this mortgage could, you could only apply for this type of mortgage if you were securing the mortgage with your principal residence. So I think the court is pretty clearly like, you know, we would not have gotten to the point where he could have even applied for this mortgage if the home itself were contemplated as being partnered.
3: Yeah, And I, I liked when um, there was a line in the opinion where the court said it would be unreasonable to conclude that potential repayment obligations totaling 198,000 are going to be secured only by a small yard and a swimming pool. <laughs> so I, looking I'm at it logically, in, that makes sense.
4: I was going to say, here in the Northeast in Massachusetts where Lance mentioned that he had practiced or New York and New Jersey, 198,000 for a yard and a pool. Maybe that's one thing, but I guess not in this area of this somewhat rural area of Alabama, so so yes, in, in the long run, the court did grant reformation of the mortgage, and with that, they used that same reasoning to say, you know because we're reforming the mortgage, the plaintiffs claim for application for summary judgment as to their ownership of the property, seeking the injunction, preventing reverse mortgage solutions from interfering with the ownership of the property, and pursuing damages for Damages caused to the property by reverse mortgage were essentially moved by the finding that this reformation of the mortgage they found that found the reverse mortgage solutions was the owner of the home.
3: So they reformed the mortgage, they reformed the sheriff's deed, and everything is as the parties originally intended.
4: Essentially, that's where they wound up. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting is that they spent some time analyzing whether or not to reform the mortgage. And the subsequent analysis was well, should we also reform the deed as part of this process? And the court relied on a case from 1938, a case called Williams, that involved apparently a very similar situation where a you know a mortgage was foreclosed on loan application indicated that the borrower lived at the property. But you know, when they after the foreclosure happened, they did a survey of the property and found out that the mortgage. Only included you know a small portion of the lot. It didn't include the lot reading right from the uh, from this opinion it did not include the portion of the lot that the home was on. so pretty much the exact same you know scenario. And in that case, you know the person who opposed reformation you know, said, well, you know you should really only reform the mortgage. you shouldn't be incorporated into the foreclosure deed as well. but in that case, the court said that the move was in, entitled to both reformation of the mortgage and of the deed. so This court, the the Davis court relied on that same case. I I thought it was interesting that really the entire reasoning, it it wasn't going into a whole lot of legal theory or any, you know, large amount of precedent, but really just one case from almost a hundred years ago that was a nearly identical solution was their reasoning. Not that I, I I guess it's hard to disagree with from the perspective of it was a nearly, you know, one-to-one factual identical scenario, but. The fact that they relied on just one case and really no other legal authority, and it was a nearly 100-year-old case, I thought was an interesting rationale.
3: I think the court got it right, though, in this case. I think they did the right Thank thing, you. reforming the mortgage, reforming the deed. I think that the parties always intended that mortgage to be covering both parcels, including the dwelling. And I think they had the right result here.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Well, thank you mm-hmm. so much, Kevin, for being with us today. Mike, did you want to add something? I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, I think those hundred all cases are what they used to call in law school chestnuts, right? You know. Absolutely.
3: <laughs> well, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Lance. Thank you, all of our listeners, all of our title nerds. Thanks for being with us today and have a great day, everybody.
1: Thank you all.
0: Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.